Is both of both? us. Okay. Isn't it nice? We don't even need producer anymore. No, he's not doing anything. We used to need producer. <laughs> um, but, you know, teach a man to fish. Yep. And then you get some nice recording equipment. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Welcome everyone to season twelve. We are I getting <laughs> a little Jackson Five ABC talking about her story. That was really cute. <laughs> Did you plan that? I didn't actually. Oh. I came up with it on the fly. Reviving Second City material. <laughs> um, so this was an idea from Doctor Misty Benz, one of our patrons, our first ever patron. Mm-hmm. That wasn't my brother, <laughs> and um, her idea was for this season. We go in alphabetical order, and we're going to go in alphabetical order by first name A to Z. A couple letters we're going to double up on. Mm -hmm. M-S-L. The names that there's a lot of people with that first letter. Mm -hmm. Um, This should be exciting. I'm really excited. It's going to be a really fun kind of challenge. And I think it'll also be a really good opportunity for us to pull from the request Uh folder. um, And, you know, get some of those letters. And it also, I don't know. It'll be really fun. I can't wait. (laughs) It puts a structure that, like, you can't predict. Yeah to the season so you know here we are here we are on her story (laughs) with katie and Allie. a is for Allie. (laughs) and this is a podcast where as you may have gathered we talk about famous women from history and we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women and alphabetical women (laughs) from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we are drinking the entire time and beforehand and afterwards mm-hmm. sometimes and we are not historians please not at all. never ever forget that <laughs> please don't because a lot of my story is a jumbled mess this evening oh mine too mine okay. too i was like watching this documentary it's like you literally just totally uh, contradicted, contradicted yourself, yourself. <laughs> i i just kept being like what is happening <laughs> i couldn't understand a lot of the material well, and i feel like yours was also like I am not also like a geopolitical no person. Exactly. (laughs) It was a lot of politics. It was hard, but it's been done. So it's been done and we did it. And as always, if we really messed up, please let us know. Oh my gosh. Because we will mess up. Um, Mm. But yeah, just know that we know we're going to mess up. So just uh, tell us when we do. Yeah. We always appreciate you guys are our spotters, please. <laughs> but you are busy teaching your niece or nephew the alphabet. Yes, you are. So you don't have time. Yeah, and you're doing it flashcards, so you oh, actually gosh. don't have to say anything. So that's why you're listening to us. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe they're getting it right, maybe they're getting it wrong. Who knows? Either way, you're ignoring it. That is Big Bird's job, and you know it. So <laughs> we're going to talk about these. We're going to describe these women so you can get a picture in your head um, because you're looking at your niece, and your niece does not look like our people. No. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe she does. She maybe. might. Got a little B. Arthur going around. Depends. Um, so <laughs> we're going to describe what they look like. We are going to get a little physical, physical. physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So tonight I am doing the famous human rights activist politician Aung San Suu Kyi. And she is a Southeastern Asian woman with dark eyes and dark hair that's parted to the side and tied back at the base of her neck. She typically wears bright, bold colors with large, like, 
matching flowers mm-hmm. in her hair and a brooch and a sash and small earrings. And she's very thin and elegant looking. But while she stands at five foot foot six in height, she portrays a woman of a much bigger stature mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who are you doing and what does she look like? Your letter, you went <laughs> right for it. Oh, I'm on point point with the theme tonight i am doing b arthur (laughs) b arthur is a tall statuesque woman she's 510 with short curled dark hair which goes salt and pepper and then white as she ages she has a very severe face (laughs) with thin lips that are often pursed And sharp eyes with very curved eyebrows that are very expressive that only add to her look of disappointment when she looks at someone who has just said something very stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And that is what she looks like. (laughs) I would say that's an apt description. (laughs) She just always looks disappointed in you. Uh, I felt a lot of shame doing this research. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, well, do you want to know what you're drinking? Yes, it's the perfect color. I truly love this color. So I mean, much. for an A cocktail, this is oh, great. On point. So the cocktail for Ong San is a uh, called the Lady, which is one of her nicknames, and it is a kind of traditional Burmesean cocktail I found online from Burma but now called Myanmar. So <laughs> it's a Myanmarian cocktail and it's two ounces of gin, three, four ounces of triple sec, a half an ounce of lime, a dash of simple syrup, a dash of bitters and a lime in the glass. Ugh. Traditionally served in a martini or coupe glass. Love it. Cheers. Cheers. And I made ours on the rocks cause mm. my ingredients were warm. Mm. <laughs> very simple, very wow. clean, very bright. I love it. I love it's it so a, much. It's a lot of the um, ingredients you would put in a margarita, except with gin, mm. which is interesting. And I love that about it. Yeah. I just, I don't know. And I think kind of like with a margarita, how you can obviously really taste the tequila. I think the gin really comes through in here. Like, this is always what I wish my experience with martinis was like. Um. <laughs> right. Well, and I also think one of the interesting things about it is they all come out this color, but everything you put in it is clear. So the color comes only from the bitters. Yeah, which, which I love. Is why it's that pinkish, like this peach color. Mm. It's very pretty, very elegant. It's good. What a great way to start the season mm. <laughs> with a delicious cocktail. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What do you know about Aung San Suu Kyi? Not much. Um, I think you said she was under house arrest. Uh, I know that apparently Burma became Myanmar. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that had something to do with said house arrest. Um, I really don't know much about her. I think that when we were talking in the kitchen, you said that she'd become president at some point. Um, But yeah, I really... I don't know. I don't yeah. know why she was put in prison under house arrest. I don't know what. Yeah, I just don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, this is a crazy story with a lot of ups and downs. And I definitely expected most of the beginning of it from what I knew of her life. But the last couple years um, are kind of really shocking. So when we get to the end of her story, it's a pretty big roller coaster because all of a sudden things kind of like change gears. Okay. Which is really weird. Okay. So um, 
First off, Burma and Myanmar, obviously I'm going to go back and forth saying the two. I might say them at the wrong times. I'm very sorry. I really don't mean it as an insult to the people of the country who are fighting for freedom. I just couldn't tell which group wanted which name at which points because it kept yeah. changing. So I'm very confused about that. Also, the name An Song Suu Kyi is like her full name and okay. there's no like surnames. So that's really like her entire name. Mm-hmm. So like when I call her An Song, that's not technically her name that's her dad's name so i'm gonna try to say the full name but that's a lot to say every single time in my notes i just kept typing assk (laughs) (laughs) because i just can't type that every time but i just wanted everybody to know i'm probably gonna slip up especially as i start drinking more Mm -hmm. i got a lot of this um online if you type in her name and biography literally everything pops up Mm. there's wikipedia pages there's you know britannica pages she's just so famous and has been for a very long time you can find a million podcasts on her you can find a lot of youtube videos some in english lots not in english specifically (laughs) like the longer ones are not in english even though she speaks flawless english um you know, like a lot of the people who are watching these documentaries in Eastern and Southeastern Asia are going to watch it in their native language. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. all right, let's get going. <laughs> An Song Suu Kyi uh, was born in 1945 in June. So like right at the like almost end of World War II mm-hmm. is like when her life is beginning on song is from her father's name. Sue is her paternal grandmother and she is from her mother's name. So all of those come together to become her full name. In Burma, Ong Song is mostly referred to as Daw, D-A-W, meaning aunt. And she is sometimes referred to as Mother Sue. So she is very like widely loved, or at least was. Ansang Suu Kyi was born in a small town and her father was very well loved as the founding father of Burma's independence. He put together an army and went to the UK in 1947 and pretty much asked for their freedom Mm. because they were a British colony and they gained their freedom in 1947 because of her dad. That's amazing. Yeah. So he's like the George Washington of Burma. (laughs) (laughs) However, he was assassinated like that no. same year when she's two years old. Oh my God. By a rival political group. So she grew up with her mom and two brothers. One of her brothers died at eight years old when he drowned in a lake. But her other brother emigrated to the United States and became a U.S. citizen. Okay. So after her brother passed away, her family moved to a new location. You kind of had, they had to get out of the town. They didn't want to like, you know, hold on to those memories. And in this new town, there was a bigger variety of people. It was more of an urban area. She learned a lot of political views and religions. It's just more diverse. She was educated at Methodist English High School for most of her childhood, where she was talented in learning various languages. She speaks Burmese, English, French, and Japanese. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Like, really well without, like, accent or problem. That's insane. It's really great. She's like, I don't even need Duolingo. I know. <laughs> I do. I'm on day 100 today. I was Yay! so it's an amazing accomplishment. I can't believe it. That's so great. I almost threw up. Congrats. <laughs> <laughs> 
her family uh, practiced Buddhism, which is very popular amongst most Southeastern Asian countries. Her mother, um, Ching Chi, after or Chin Chi, gained prominence as a politician after her father was assassinated in the new Burmese government. So her mom became the ambassador to India and Nepal in 1960. Wow. So Aung San Suu Kyi followed her mom there because she lived with her mom. And being in India really shaped Aung San's worldview. Um, and she was really influenced by Gandhi and his practices of nonviolence in protest and also himself as a politician. Because we see him as, you know, a nonviolence, like, protester yeah. and like world leader but he was also a politician yeah who like dealt with partition and like went to the british to get indian freedom mm -hmm. so like there's a lot going on with him that we don't often think about yeah so while in india she studied in two schools first to like finish her secondary degree and then to go on to the university of delhi where she got a degree in politics while she's in india her country is in like pure chaos so burma um a general deposes the uh democracy that her father helped build and it's now you know unraveling so okay. there's no longer a democracy and it's military rule or a group military dictatorship one party rule but she goes on she's living in india then she goes to England to continue continue her elite education, going to Oxford to get a degree in philosophy and politics and economics. And it's like a master's. After graduating, though, she leaves Oxford and goes to New York City and, like, lives in New York with a family friend who was a famous Burmese pop singer <laughs> at some point. <laughs> and... While she's in New York, she works for the UN for three years. What? And primarily on budget. She's like a low person on the totem pole. She's a young girl. But, you know, every single day she's writing to her future husband who she met at Oxford, Dr. Michael Aris. And they end up getting married in 1972 and having two sons. Uh, I saw a picture of her. He's very cute. He is <laughs> very cute. And the boys are cute, too. Yeah, Their sons so are adorable. cute. I feel like he's like the guy here. Like, if you were to literally write like the rom-com of a girl going to Oxford and meeting like a cute boy and having a whirlwind romance. He's like, the Benedict Cumberbatch. It would be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know you don't like him at all. I, no, I just don't find him attractive. That's what I'm saying. You don't like, I meant okay, not I, like him as a person. <laughs> I don't have a crush on him. Okay. <laughs> However, her sons grew up born and raised in the UK. So they don't have like any connection to the Southeastern Asia, like part of her life during all this time, <laughs> her country is spiraling into a dictatorship and she's watching from afar, mm -hmm. but she begins to research to write a book about her father. Oh, who is the founding father of her country that is no longer a country, but things would come to an end really quickly in 1988 when Ansang Su Chi returns to Burma to tend to her mother, who's really, really sick. Oh. So she leaves her husband and kids and goes home. Um, as fate would have it, <laughs> this is like a really shitty time to go to Burma slash Myanmar. Um, because it is like out of control. There's no. people 
protesting in the streets. The longtime military leader is stepping down. All these nationalists are protesting to try to get the um, democracy back. And there's a big demonstration on August 8th, 1988, which is now called the 8888 Uprising, where they're protesting against the government and the regime cracks down and kills 3,000 protesters and arrests many, many more. Oh, my God. The group wanting democracy looked for a leader and landed on the daughter of their founding father, Aung San. They're like, we need you. This will be amazing. So she did just that. Two weeks later, she gets up on the steps in front of this big, beautiful pagoda and addresses half a million people in the country calling for a democratic government. But by September, only two weeks after that, a new military group had taken over. Now, Aung San Suu Kyi was influenced by Mahatma Gandhi, like we said, his philosophy of nonviolence, but more so the Buddhist concepts of taking the middle path and non-suffering. So she entered politics to work for democracy, and she founded a political party that is still in existence today, kind of, in Myanmar, the National League for Democracy. After a period of unrest, the state law and order restoration council was created. To kind of combat her. This is really just the new military government. Yeah. So a whole bunch of shitty stuff happens all at once. Her mom passes away. She's in a country separated from her husband and sons. And her bold demands for human rights are making her a target. So they take her on July 20th, 1989, and make her a political prisoner. Mm. She was offered freedom if she left the country and never returned. Like in Lion King. (laughs) Remember Scar, leave and never return. It's really serious. That's awful. Wait, and sorry, where are her children? Are they with her? They're in the UK (gasps) with her husband. Oh my God. So they say you can either stay here and fight for democracy and be a prisoner Or you can leave and never come home. Oh, my God. So this is the choice that she has to make. (sighs) Her beliefs or her family. Oh, my God. She chooses her beliefs. Mm. You know what's funny, though, is if she was a man, no one would think. Everyone would be like, wow, like, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But I feel like because she's a woman, it's like. How could you do that to your kids? It's so much harder for us to see a woman leaving her children. Yeah. Which is such a double standard. It is a double standard. Mm. I'd also venture to guess it hurt her more than it would have hurt her husband. Oh, like I, emotionally, emotionally speaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that's not true of all moms, but like I would just venture to make that guess. Yeah. <laughs> or all dads, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, so now she's there. She is a prisoner and she refuses to leave. Despite her detention, the party that she helped build in the next election wins a landslide of victories like so many seats in like the parliament but the military refuses to recognize any of the winners but she is gaining more and more support just by being locked away and gains the nickname the lady she especially 
remained popular with the youth and always with the youth. Because as we know, young people are typically typically the most pissed off about injustice oh yeah don't you know that children are our future exactly Mm -hmm. give them alcohol and let them i don't know don't (laughs) give them alcohol (laughs) (laughs) give them alcohol before they're legally allowed to drive that's my political belief but now we have uber (laughs) (laughs) um but no, it's like the young people are seeing this injustice. Like they know her dad existed, mm-hmm. but they see that she made this party for democracy and they support her. And now she's locked away and they're super upset about that. So in 1990, the military calls for this general election and her party receives 59% of the votes, 80% of the parliament seats. And by most accounts, like she is winning elections like even though she's locked away but they just keep nullifying all these results Ah, that's so frustrating she is just like locked in her house so then the rest of the world kind of catches a whiff of this so it's 1990 and the european parliament gives her an award for freedom of thought Then it's still 1990. She's still under house arrest and she receives the Nobel Peace Prize (laughs) for sitting in her house. Love that. Nobel Peace Prize. The committee says that they decided that they were going to give it to her for her nonviolent struggle for democracy and human rights. Her two sons accepted the award for her because she wasn't allowed to attend the ceremony. Oh, my gosh. How old were they at this time? Do we have um, an idea? So, let's see. They were born in the 70s, so they're in their 20s. Oh, my God. They're in their 20s. Their mom left to go home in 1988, so they were, like, in their, like, Caroline and Liza's age, like, 12, 13 when she okay. left. So, they haven't seen her in, like, six years, <gasps> six, seven years. Oh, my God. Um she used the $1.3 million to establish a health and education trust for Burmese people who were outside of the country. Ah, oh, an angel. A real angel. <laughs> and in 1995, after six years in house arrest, she is released, but only allowed to stay within the capital city of Myanmar or Burma. Never out of it. Just okay. the capital city. So she's no longer in her house, but she's in the capital city. And then... Her husband, he's in the UK. He sends a plea to the government. He says, I've been diagnosed with prostate cancer and I am going to die. Oh my God. Can I please come visit my wife? Oh my God. For one last time. (gasps) The answer was no. No, no. Appeals came from Kofi Annan and Pope John Paul II to let him into the country to see her for one last time. And they said, she can leave to visit him. (gasps) He can't come in here. They're trying to get her out of the country so that she can never come back. Terrible. I hate this. That's terrible. Ah. uh, (laughs) Yeah. That's Uh so stupid. Stupid. I hate that. I know. So he is dying with her two 20-something-year-old sons in the UK, and she is stuck in the capital city. 
And she's delivering keynote addresses at like conferences and she's meeting with people who come in the country. But then she's driving around in this motorcade and attacked by 200 men who like swoop in wielding metal chains and like batons and stones and shit and the back of her car is bashed in she is completely unrattled by this attack she's like whatever but she then after the attack boldly claims i'm gonna leave the capital city defying the military so days later after she had been out of house arrest for less than a year (laughs) they put her back in house arrest and ang sang su chi um is imprisoned on a numerous, numerous occasions. This is the second of four times, um, now five, four initial times that she would be thrown in house arrest during her political career. So at this point, they had her in for six years. She came out for less than a year. She's thrown back in because she is just too much of a power player and they have to get her off the board. She's like the queen in the game of chess. Yeah. And Burmanese mm-hmm. are gone. So she's prevented from meeting with party supporters. She would sit at home all day and read philosophies and politics and biographies and send letters to her husband and kids. She would sit around and play the piano. Now, to be fair, they could have thrown her in prison, and they didn't. She is living, like, in a luxurious house in Burma, like, of a wealthy family, and there are a lot of political prisoners who are starving and cold in prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to say that, that a lot of people who supported her also got thrown in jail and did not get this good treatment. Mm -hmm. She's getting this treatment because she's the daughter of the founding father, right? Like, so she's like a privileged prisoner, (laughs) which is really hard to think about, but she is. So... She is playing piano. She has, like, rare visits from guests the government allows and sometimes, like, personal physicians because she has some pretty bad health because she can't really go anywhere or do anything. Um, But really, she's, at this point, just trying to stay on the government's good side because, A, she doesn't want her sentence to get longer, and, B, she doesn't want it to turn into jail time. Right. So she is granted permission again at this point to leave the country but she refuses she continues to refuse and then even the media is prevented from meeting with her they take away all photographs of her all film of her all tapes of her speaking all notes about her so that nobody they're trying to make her not exist pretty much so the government kept her imprisoned because it viewed her as someone who would undermine them in total Mm -hmm. But then a couple years have passed of her sitting at her house and her husband does die. (gasps) No. A little bit after his 53rd birthday on March 27th, 1999. And he had never gotten to see her again. And her children are still living separated from her in the United Kingdoms. (sighs) Really sad. So around that that year, around the year 2000, she is let out again for a couple of years. But then in 2003, there's another huge attack on her and a group of her people. And the government puts her right back into house arrest. But when like the UN is like, this is arbitrary detention of people. They're like, we're doing it for her safety. 
because she keeps getting attacked and she's like no i'm fine yeah i would rather not but then when she says she's fine they're like oh but we actually put you in here um for tax evasion because you spent your nobel prize money in another country (laughs) which is absurd and (laughs) she's now apparently causing international security issues I don't know. Overall, the involvement of the UN is back and forth. Sometimes they can help. Sometimes they can send people in to meet her. But like, um, sometimes people try to go in and see her and the government's like, no, you can't even be here. Right. So around 2007, all these Buddhist monks are protesting and she goes out to her gate to like bless them, like in her front yard. Uh She didn't leave her yard. She's Mm -hmm. just blessing them. And some people got like pictures of it and like wrote stuff about it. So then she's thrown in prison. Oh, my God. Because she, like, blessed these monks. And then, you know, two years later, after she spends a little bit of time in prison, she goes back to her house. And there's apparently, like, a lake next to her house. And this guy, John, got a vision from God that he needed to warn her that she was going to be assassinated. So he swims across the lake, uninvited, to tell her about this assassination attempt. And she's like, chill out. Like, sit in this chair, like, take a breather, and then you can, like, go back home. Swim back home. <laughs> so he swims back, <laughs> gets arrested, but then she gets arrested for violating her house no, arrest. Because so- <laughs> oh, John, your intentions were so good. John! So and everybody's like, oh my God, this is absurd. Oh, so they God, keep her honey. in jail. But most people think they kept her in jail, which is true, like, a couple days after post the newest election that's happening yeah. just so she can't influence people. So she did spend her 64th birthday in jail sharing rice and chocolate cake with her jailer, which is crazy. Jesus. So the trial for all of this, cause she did have to go on trial for this guy swimming through her lake. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a goddamn kangaroo trial. Honestly, she's on trial so much. So, <laughs> She gets sentenced to three years hard labor for that, but they commute the sentence to, guess it, house arrest. (laughs) Three more years of house arrest. They're like, do you love your house? (laughs) Would you love to just be there forever? In 2009, Barack Obama gives a speech and he's like, can we not? His whole speech. Very. Can we stop? Can we let her go? Please. Please? Let my people go? (laughs) He was was being the Moses. He's like, baby, I'm a Moses for you. (laughs) Exactly. I'm a Moses for you. Exactly. She had support from all the Western nations in Europe, Australia, North and South America, India, Israel, Japan, the Philippines, South Korea, George Bush is like, get her out of there. (laughs) (laughs) Even, even G-dubs is like, get her out. This is crazy. GBMBO. The same page. (laughs) I know. It's amazing. The only other thing that brought them together was (laughs) 9-11. That's terrible. Was Obama? No, he wasn't there, but they felt the same about it. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. (laughs) Patriotic. I thought you were going to say, like, golf or something. <laughs> golf, too. Probably I, a beer or so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the ex-presidents they do love together. love a ranch. We know that. <laughs> a ranch, a beer, a golf, and a 9-11. <laughs> Classic president combo. <laughs> so, shitting on Trump. 
is mm. the other thing they share. Same, honey. <laughs> Minus the golf. I did give someone the stink eye today because he was like a crazy man driving on the highway and he had like a thousand Trump stickers. And I was like, you're being a lunatic and you have a million Trump stickers on your car. Can I tell you something that really pissed me off? I need to take a break. This is something that really pissed me okay. off. It doesn't have to do with Trump, but it does have to do with driving. So <laughs> I'm pulling into a parking lot uh-huh. and I'm about to pull into an empty space mm-hmm. and I'm halfway through the turn and somebody turned into the opposing <gasps> space and, and went pulled to pull through. through. Okay. So I'm fine. Uh-huh. I'm whatever. Uh-huh. So I go to back up and keep going straight. And then the woman who stopped because I was about to pull in gave me the roll her eyes <laughs> and like the what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, this wasn't my fault. No, 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 no. no. It wasn't your fault at all. I just like slammed on my brakes and I was like, them. Look at them. They're and pulling goddamn through. eyes. That's okay. not my fault. I was so, I get so mad when people blame me for a traffic thing. That's not my fault. It's like when you're, it's like when you're ready to like you're turning onto like a busy street like you know you're coming from a small street and there's a really busy street and you're starting to turn this has happened to me twice recently and the person behind you honks at you to just get going already and you're like i literally can't there's cars in the road (laughs) that's happened to me twice in the past month and I was like, this is why people get into fucking accidents because the, I have anxiety every time I am making like a turn into a busy street because if, if someone is behind me because I'm like, they're mad that I'm not going yet because they can't see the full road. Right. They don't know that that person is going way too fast. So I just like, do you want me to get into a fucking car accident? You don't have the full picture, my friend. God, I hate it. Also, don't give somebody else the right away when you have the right away. I so mm, annoying. Absolutely, that happens in front of our house all the time when you're coming this way because the person in the closest lane stops uh-huh. and uh-huh. they're waving me through, but I can't see the other lanes. So yeah. I'm like, I don't want because if I pull through, my kids are going to get broadsided. Yep. Yep. It's ridiculous. Oh God, I and I'm always like, go, like, go. Like, yeah. I don't know what to do. You should just you. like make up a sign for it, like. Don't worry about me. Keep going. Please, please block my driveway. <laughs> That's what also, it would be one thing if like you saw them look behind and they were like, okay, like you're good to go. Sometimes people do that. They go, they're looking in their mirror and they're like, okay, go, go, go. But okay. that's a person who understands. Yes. Some people are just Some idiots. people don't understand. Okay. Driving corner. Because <laughs> I drive all day. <laughs> I drive occasionally and it's shitty. I so. did. Uh, I was all over the, uh, did I tell you? Okay. Sorry. One more thing in no. driving corner. Go ahead. <laughs> you know how wild our Easter was. It was. I was so drunk. True, true insanity. I had to drive to Bridgerton, Bridgerton, (laughs) Bridgerton, Bridgeville, whatever the hell it is. Bridgerton, Delaware. Damn. I had to drive to Delaware. I had to be there at nine in the morning. (laughs) Katie, I get there to test for radon. The buildings are not finished. There's no electricity. There's construction workers coming in and out. The rooms aren't divided. There's no, there's nothing. The, there's nothing. <laughs> How do you even do, test radon there? You can't. Can. <laughs> exactly. And then I had to call the company and I was like, hello, uh, the buildings aren't done. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, I mean, they're not done. They're not finished. There's <laughs> no way we're testing. And they were like, they told us two weeks ago that the buildings were finished. I was like, who made that decision? Two weeks ago, there probably wasn't even a building here. Like, that's how <laughs> not far along they are. Like, yeah. So I drove to Delaware for no reason with a horrible hangover. 
It was very upsetting. Did you sit on the beach at least? No, because it was still like I was in the middle of Delaware. Ugh. So I went inward and it was still another hour to the beach. So I like I couldn't even make it like a fun trip to like <laughs> the outlets or anything. So annoying. I was very drunk on Easter. Me too. I was so drunk that I didn't know you were that drunk. Did you know <laughs> I was that drunk? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was very drunk there was one point where we were sitting shoulder to shoulder <laughs> and i was like this is it <laughs> i know we took a happening. picture i have a picture of it really i have a picture of us yeah <laughs> i don't we, remember that picture at we all we never do that <laughs> okay all right all right i'm very sorry that'll be for patreon driving corner <laughs> went to personal corner so fast okay here we go so it's getting so crazy that she's still locked up that the UN is having all the countries vote on whether or not to help her get out of lockup. Oh <laughs> locked up, won't let me up. Exactly, they won't. Okay. So 80 countries vote for her release, 25 vote against it, oh. and 45 just don't vote at all. Because like countries that have military regimes are like not sympathetic yeah. towards her at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. But people like the Dalai Lama and all the presidents and ex-presidents are like, please fucking let her out. Mm -hmm. So in 2010, there's elections in Burma, Myanmar. Um, but, uh, the military backed like group is kind of like, okay, maybe we're going to change things up a little bit. There's this 20 year gap. So they finally agreed to sign an order allowing her release from house arrest on November 13th, 2010. The first time she went in for perspective was 1989. <laughs> so in 2010, after her longest stint in house arrest, she is released. And she had spent 15 of 21 years in house arrest. No, thank you. No, thank you. Oh, my God. So now there are discussions happening between her and, like, the military government and they're freeing the other political prisoners that were locked up around the same time that she was. And she's meeting with like the secretary of state, Hillary Clinton and like people from the United nations. And then in 2012, there's these huge elections and she's expected to run for a political seat. And she openly campaigns against the 2008 constitution that they wrote because she can't be president under that constitution because she has a foreign husband and foreign kids. They wrote that law just for her. And then she's going for more protection of rights for the people an independent judiciary. Um, she's online. She's on television. Some of it's being censored by the government, but she is like really getting out there. And as it turns out, her party wins 43 of the 45 congressional seats. Oh, my God. It's amazing. And even she wins one of the congressional seats. Ugh. However, the 2008 Constitution made it so that the military always has 26% of the vote and you need 75% of the vote to get anything passed. So they still can't really do anything even though they have these seats. That but doesn't make, like, any sense. It doesn't make sense at what? all. It's like a mock election. It was like they were letting it happen almost. But they're working their way towards a democracy. So even if no one voted for them, they would still automatically get 26%? 
Yeah, they still get 26% of all the votes. What a weird number. Yeah, well, it's just so that they have not the 75. So the other people can't have 75%. That's so dumb. But she did, in her new freedom, finally get to make her Nobel Prize speech, (laughs) which she did. And then she does a tour across the United States and gets listed in Forbes as the 61st most powerful woman in the world. And then she goes to run for president in 2015 of her country. But again, she really can't, even though she is a lawmaker and a politician, she can't be president. So after that election, they make a role for her called state counselor. So she's pretty much the president. She's like doing all the work of the president, but she's not the prime minister. She's the state counselor. So... As soon as she gets this role, she starts inviting foreign ministers in from China, from Canada, from Italy, and they're building good relationships. And she grants grants amnesty for all the students and people who were arrested while she was fighting. Now I would love to say this is the end of her story. And she (laughs) lives happily ever after. But there is a dark side. No. To this that I didn't expect. I knew all this stuff that mm-hmm. she was in house arrest forever and then became the pseudo president. But it seems that power can also corrupt the best of us. <gasps> no. And it's kind of hard to say exactly what was happening because this is very recent, like between 2017 and now. So there's this minority group of Muslims that lives in. Myanmar and hundreds of thousands of these Muslims are fleeing the country for their lives to China because of an ethnic cleansing. She's denied claims of ethnic cleansing and stated that people are like pointing fingers at her for genocide as she's in charge of the country, um, which is kind of obvious because it this area in China has the biggest refugee camp since World War II for this Muslim group. When asked, she denies all the claims, but she also refused to give any of the Muslim people citizenship and started trying to issue them ID cards to, like, live in the country. At best, people say that she's distracted and out of touch. Like... Right. She's been locked up for a long time, and now she's trying to run a country that she's not actually the president of and doesn't really have all the power because the military is still there. Right. So, like, she's trying to keep favor with all the people. Mm-hmm. And at worst, people are saying that her own prejudices are making her turn a blind eye to their suffering. <sighs> Critics then begin calling for the removal of of Aung San Suu Kyi's Nobel Prize, <gasps> Nobel Peace Prize, citing that her silence is indifference and indifference is murder because these people are dying. Like they're being slaughtered right. and being running from the country. Yeah. Um, she says, which I think this is very out of touch, that violence is due to the climate of fear caused by a worldwide perception of the global Muslim power, saying that like, Muslims are terrorists and they're that's dangerous. Um, But she also says that she doesn't condone hate against them. And she like doesn't enforce like laws. Like there used to be laws that like the Muslim families could only have two kids and she doesn't support those laws. But it's like, she's also not doing anything to like stop these like 
aggressions in the outskirts of you know they're in it's all in the rural regions it's not like in the capitals right. but she's not really doing very much well it's frustrating is it seems like you know she was doing more from house arrest than she's doing right now when she like it's her cup of doesn't tea. have a barrier it's her to cup what of tea say to, to to fix human rights violations yeah. and everybody was like you're the human rights girl which none of us are perfect i no, think no, 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 what no. they did yeah. is they put a halo on her yeah you're perfect you sat in your house so apparently you know how to run a country she doesn't you know what no. I mean? Which is like, yes, she has her degree in politics, this, that, and the other. She's been a human rights activist, but that doesn't mean she can just wake up one day and solve all the problems. It also doesn't mean that these Muslim families should be abused by the Myanmar government. No, absolutely not. Or by any people in Myanmar at all. So it's like this really crazy situation where it's like she went from being like on a pedestal mm -hmm. to now the same people who were cheering for her are like, you are a human rights violation. Like, how yeah. dare you do that to these people? Oh, God. If I could, like, if there was another name for our podcast, it might be the problem with pedestals. Because I feel like we run into that all the time of these right. people who we consider saints. And then we're so mad if they do mess up because humans mess up. Yeah. You know? And, like, of course, some, <laughs> More than some mess ups are genocide and some <laughs> are, you know, other things. But, exactly. like, you know, it's just... It is the problem with pedestals that like no one can live up to that. Like I literally, you know, I'm, re I'm doing B Arthur. So of course a lot of stuff about Betty White came up and someone, I didn't watch it, but someone made this whole video of like why Betty White is evil. And I was like, okay, calm down, <laughs> calm down, evil. But, but yeah, I think it's the problem when yes, yeah, someone, and of course she's literally just in a house without being able to do much right. and now she's like in charge and it's yeah, also really weird because we saw this same thing happen um to indira gandhi mm -hmm. who was the first female prime minister of india mm -hmm. and she didn't protect the sikh people like yeah. she should have yeah. and she got assassinated by sikh people mm -hmm. because of that like extremists not like sikh people in general right but like yeah. it's like when you end up the leader of a country that has a lot of religious tension, you have to address that. Yeah. You have to. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I mean, the same thing happened to Gandhi, right? Like yeah. every, like it is what it is. You, if you're in a place with religious tension, you have to address it. Yeah. So she did not address it, which is the biggest fault to her. So human rights lobbyists are now lobbying that, like, you need to take a stand. You need to say something. The U.N.'s pissed at her. The U.S. is pissed at her. The Dalai Lama said that she is legitimizing ethnic cleansing mm. and, like, letting it happen. Even Malala came out and was like, I would like to hear from Miss Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, because she hasn't said anything yeah. about this crisis. Um, Oxford took away her award saying we she's no longer worthy of the honor. Oh. Dublin took away her award saying we no longer wish to be associated with this silence. The Holocaust Memorial Museum revoked her award citing her failure to condemn the military's brutal campaign. Amnesty International took away their association with her and put her on trial in the <gasps> Netherlands at the International Court. Whoa. Yeah. She stated that 
the allegations of genocide were incomplete and misleading, saying that there have been fighting on both sides, that it's more of like a civil war situation than it is a genocide. But it doesn't seem that way. I, I mean, it would be like if you, and this is a really broad thing, but like, you know, a, a big bridge to <laughs> broach whatever the hell. But it would be like if you did believe Putin when he's like, no, 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 like, we're not attacking Ukraine. Ukraine is attacking us and we're <laughs> yeah. retaliating or whatever right. the hell he it's fucking like, says. It's true. like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's not true. Like you are misrepresenting what's happening. Right. So then she did get interviewed in 2017 and the interviewer said, do you think people misjudged you as a mother Teresa when you're more like a Margaret Thatcher? <gasps> and she was just like, I don't think I'm either. I just think I'm a politician. Like, she was like, I never said I was Mother Teresa. You guys did. So, like, I do get that. But, like, this is rough. But it's then rough. it gets even worse. Oh, no! In 2017, two journalists who were doing investigative journalism of the genocide get arrested. And... um. They were arrested for violating the Office Secret Act. But they were just arrested for the freedom of speech. And they're just, like, in prison. And then she was kind of like, well, did anybody actually read what the judge said? Because the, they actually did break laws and, like, X, Y, Z. But now these, like, journalists were in prison for something that, like, they should have been able to report on in a democratic country. Mm -hmm. Well, the military goes, ha, the queen has lost her crown. So this fall from grace means that we can take the country back. So in February 2021, the military took back over Ugh. Myanmar. They arrested and deposed Aung San Suu Kyi, and they declared all of her elections fraudulent on that evening she was thrown back into arrest this is february of last year and formally charged with illegally importing 10 or more walkie-talkies uh she faced up to three years in prison for this in May 2021, she was stripped of all of her political positions and her title and her political party was dissolved. She appeared in front of court and was like, she really kind of looked confused. She was like, I'm not fully aware of what's going on. I haven't gotten word from anybody. I know that like our country doesn't exist anymore, but my party exists because wherever democracy exists, part my party exists and I wish you all good health. In June of last year, she was moved from her home to an unknown location and charged with corruption that gets up to 15 years in jail. Um, her lawyers are doing the best they can, but uh, standing up to a military dictatorship, especially when she's elderly and in fragile health, is not very easy. But the charges keep coming and a bunch of prison time is on the line. The first couple charges stuck in December of this past year, 2021, she was sentenced to four years in jail on the charges of uh, inciting dissent and violating COVID-19 protocols. Um, and she got a partial pardon for that and only gets two years in prison. But this January 2022, the military sentenced her with another four years in prison on a number of charges. 
And she's, I mean, she's going to be in jail again for the whole foreseeable future. And uh, there are movies about her. There are plays and books and songs and television shows featuring her. She's been on the cover of magazines and received and been taken away some of the most prestigious awards in the world. (laughs) For all of her good, she did turn a blind eye to some really bad. And you can't get rid of that. Mm -mm. And what happened was because of it, she sunk back to where she began instead of being somebody to look up to she became the worst of us Mm. and it's the mentality where like you have to turn around and say it's for all of us or none of us which is we talked about that in the susan b anthony episode where she did go against certain voting laws because it wasn't for everybody and it looks bad but Mm -hmm. it's the it's the thing that needed to happen so That is Aung San Suu Kyi's story so far. She's currently sitting in prison in Myanmar. And um, the country has fallen back into a dictatorship. Oh, my God. So that is a distressing end. I did not like that end. I told you. (laughs) I told you. You warned me. You warned me. I said at the end it gets really bad. Because it was like... Okay, I hate genocide. Hate it. <laughs> Obviously. I mean, who doesn't, right? <laughs> like <Duh>. your mom said. <laughs> Allie's mom complains, apparently. <laughs> I'm not I'm not there. But Allie has brunch with her family and then dinner with my family every Sunday. And apparently it's a saying. It's like, Allie, is it always genocide with you? I hate genocide. Because you hate it so I, and much. I always that you bring, bring it up. up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like, but what about Rwanda? What about, what about the Uyghur Muslims? What about Darfur? <laughs> like, I can't get like, over Allie, it. Allie, there's French toast on the table. Calm down. <laughs> I can't calm down. <laughs> we know that. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like, she should have been fully equipped to handle what was happening with the, you know, Muslim majority in her country. But she was also in jail for 15 of the 20 previous years. Uh, I know. It's so hard. And I don't want to justify it because it is wrong. It's wrong. It is wrong. wrong. What she did was wrong. And those people deserve a fair shake and not to die or to run from their homeland, like at any point in their lives. (laughs) It's just like, I don't know. It's so distressing. I don't even know what to think about it because she was such a hero for so long that just in the last three years, all of a sudden, she's not a hero anymore. Yeah. That's crazy. It's hard, but it's also just such a fact of humanity that like heroes crumble and heroes disappoint you. And heroes have faults. Yeah. And opinions that are shitty. Yeah. Really bad. Oh, God. All right. Well, <laughs> B. Arthur. Are you ready next. to go from A to B? <laughs> I hope B. Arthur's not like a secret. I don't know. We'll see. Racist. What is she? Okay, we'll find out after the break. <laughs> Bye. We're back. Back with part two, a little honey cocktail. We're starting <laughs> strong with the cocktails. I know. So pretty. It's very cute. It's pretty. Do you want to know what it is? I really do. Okay. This is called 
terribly seriously funny. <laughs> it is honey, lemon curd, gin, and you can use aquafaba or chick or chickpea juice or egg white, you know, whichever your flavor. Um, and then you top the whole thing off with champagne and then you garnish with a swiggle of honey on the foam. Honey glaze? A honey glaze? A honey glazed cocktail. cocktail. <laughs> Honey bee for bee. Mm. So nice. Ooh, that is interesting. <laughs> it's good. I really like it. I like it too. I love that texture. Like I do love when it, it's like a creamy cocktail. It's I love just a very foam, fun. foam texture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really nice. Ugh. Well, thank you for that. You're welcome. It was my, we were joking on the way back to the recording studio about how I was thinking about calling it a bee in your bonnet because that was yeah. an episode of Bridgerton recently. But we'll see why I named it this. <laughs> Anyways, Allie, what do you know about B. Arthur? So B. Arthur is a comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that she was on the Golden Girls. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure she was on All in the Family, mm-hmm. I think. Um, she's a very sarcastic woman mm-hmm. um and also like a very judgmental <laughs> woman um and like both in person and in her character like she's suited to her character but then i also think that like sometimes when you get typecast a lot you start to act a specific way yeah so that's what i know about b arthur i don't know anything about her personal life um you know i like her in things that i see her in i think she's funny i think she's a necessary puzzle piece to a lot of shows of that like very like sadistic character that's like come on is this real so Mm -hmm. that's b arthur (laughs) that's what i know about her i don't know about her personal life literally at all (laughs) all right well we're gonna get into it um so i want to say straight away like there were only like two sources on her there was a youtube video called an intimate portrait they did every single one of the golden girls i think um it was basically like like a like a early 2000s documentary that would air on tv um so i used that and her wikipedia page and that was basically it so somebody get on a b arthur biography please a b bio Um, a biography <laughs> a bibliography <laughs> um and One i also want to say that some of the information in the documentary was like a little contradictory like she'd be like and then my husband moved to california and then i was like and then b got a chance to move to california and i was like oh great her husband's there and it was like but her husband didn't want to go and i was like i thought he was already there so <laughs> If you are a B. Arthur expert and you are upset at my timeline, I apologize. The timeline was a little fuzzy. Um, and also there were things on her Wikipedia page that were not on her documentary. Some very crucial things. <laughs> Interesting. I usually, I feel like you, Wikipedia is usually like a really good like outline maker. And then yes. I fill in the gaps with uh-huh. the other shit. But there okay. like was the only other shit was this documentary. <laughs> That's amazing. Not even any podcasts. There was one that I didn't listen to and maybe I should, but it was like just a bunch of comedians talking about her. Um, so I like kind of started it and then I was like, oh, they're not really getting into a lot of the substance. Right. So, anyways. Okay. Okay. Let's get into it. I'm ready. Bernice Frankel was born on May 13th, 1922 in Brooklyn, New York. I just want to stop you and say that's your grandmother's name and she hated it. 
B hated it too. And we'll get into it. Oh, that's so great. I love that. Yes, I my, love that for you. My grandmother was famously named Bernice Eugenia. <laughs> famously. Famously. Uh, because my great grandmother was like 15 years old when she got married. What a chaotic name, though. Did not know that she how she got pregnant. And then when she had my grandmother, she named her after the doctor who like did the birth, delivered, delivered Delivered her. her. Thank you. Uh I don't want to give all the credit to a man, Allie. (laughs) Bernice Eugenia. She was named after Bernard Eugene MD. And she hated that name so much. Bernice Eugenia is a mouthful but i will say she went by bunny which is which very is so cute. cute yeah but her sister got wheezy which i is know way cute. i know i know Ugh. okay whatever so she's born in brooklyn. <laughs> brooklyn wait what year did you say 1922 oh my god so long ago yes her parents were jewish immigrants her mother rebecca was from austria and her father philip was from poland and altogether they had three girls and b was right in the middle but when she was still Ugh, a middle young girl, child. <laughs> but when she was still a young girl, the Great Depression hit the U.S. So her whole family picked up and moved from Brooklyn to a small town on the eastern shore of Maryland. <gasps> what? Called Cambridge. No! I know. Which I had like. I dated a boy from St. Michael's, yeah. and so all of his friends were from Cambridge. Alec. Hi. <laughs> Shout out to Alec. Hi. Um, <laughs> sorry your Gma just died. <laughs> oh, my God. Bless you. Um, I love Cambridge, so. It's so cute. Okay. Also, when my family would drive to Ocean City, <laughs> there was like a countdown. It was like you would get to the Bay Bridge, then Easton, Cambridge, Salisbury, there. Mm-hmm. So like Cambridge was like the middle point. Yeah. Like I've made You're it like, halfway to the beach. God, it's so crazy too. I mean, I was like almost there this week driving yeah. to fucking Delaware. Also, people who don't know, Baltimore is two and a half to three hours on a bad day. Yeah. From the Atlantic Ocean. Yes. I don't think people know that. We're on the harbor, but we're very far from the ocean. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so they moved to Cambridge where her father uh, owned and operated a women's clothing store. And very quickly into this, uh, apparently she started going by Beatrice. She started telling her people her name was Beatrice. And then I think she started going by B. Uh, because apparently in Cambridge, Maryland in the 1920s, there were a lot of boys with the name Burnice, which is spelled B-U-R-N-I-C-E. And she goes, I hated the name Burnice. <laughs> so she goes, my name's Beatrice. And I go by B. Um, so just like my grandmother, she hated the name Bernice. Oh, <laughs> and I'm thing. so sorry if there's any Bernice listening. I don't hate your name. These women do. Right. But like if you hate it, <laughs> tell us what you go by. Please do. Do you go would, by your middle name? Do you yeah. go by Nisi? That would be cute. Do you demand that people call you a full Bernice? I would love a full Bernice. I want somebody to say, but only <laughs> call me a full Bernice. It has to be the whole thing. <laughs> Hi, excuse me. When you when you talk to me, call me a full Bernice. Please, please use the formal Bernice, <laughs> like Usted. Um. <laughs> good, good one. Uh, okay, but it wasn't just her first name that made her stand out. 
The Frankels were one of the very few Jewish families in this area. Okay. So they were always seen as a bit different. And then B had a bit of a growth spurt. By the time she was 12, she had reached her full height of 5'10". B was different. She was tall and she was painfully shy. So she decided to beat her classmates to the punch and she became the class clown. <laughs> she made jokes. She made people laugh. But all along, she dreamed of being the typical cute blonde fancy starlet like petite girl right yeah so you're a tall girl Mm -hmm. that's really hard in middle school yes because you're usually taller than the boys i remember so specifically always being put in the they do the class photos and i was always in the back row with the boys and Mm. it is so psychologically scarring i cannot even explain (laughs) I can't imagine. So, like, I always, like, of of small stature, I was Mm -hmm. always loud to make up for it. Mm -hmm. I was always like, I'm big, you know? But, like, I can't imagine because I do see, like, as a, I was a middle school teacher for a very long time. The tall girls always slouch. They're trying to make themselves smaller. Mm -hmm. And I'm always like, I'm sorry, baby. I know. The boys will catch up. They'll catch up. It's just so hard. And, you know, like, I can, I can totally see where B is coming from. She's like, I I was making myself into a Carol Burnett, but she goes, I didn't want to be a Carol Burnett. I wanted to be a Grace Kelly. And like, I'm put, she didn't say that quote because I was, I'm putting this in people that were (laughs) famous later, but like, Like, that's what I was gathering from her. She's like, I didn't want to be the funny girl. I wanted to be the classy girl, which I totally get because like, I was a tall, awkward (laughs) I feel like that too. I feel like everybody's felt like that before. Like sometimes you want to be fun loving, but sometimes you want to be elegant and it's really, you have to have a certain look to be elegant. You know what is funny about that is I always say that one of the greatest compliments that someone gave me about my wedding was how happy you looked. No. Oh, that was what <laughs> not I, that. That's the compliment I thought. No. Someone said it was such an elegant wedding. <gasps> And it was it was um Ro who said that my uh, new sister in law and it was very elegant. on Casey's side and I was so pleased because you know I think people thought I was going to have kind of like a barn wedding you know which are very cool you know but they're very in right now I didn't want that and I wanted it to be elegant and I wanted to be classy I told my you know caterer I was like I wanted to feel like an Italian cocktail party mm. you know and. So to have that vision reached and for someone to give me that compliment felt so good. <laughs> and so like, I just so understand where B is coming from when she's young, where she's like, I want to be seen as elegant. I don't want to be seen as like goofy. Yeah. I don't know. I just, that's hard. No, I, I heard B so much when she's younger. I've heard multiple people say about your wedding that you're the happiest bride <laughs> they ever saw. Is, and I it was also a very good compliment. No, but I, I like, I absolutely agree with that. I was like, why you were like giddy the entire day like giddy to the point where it was just like a joy to watch you and Casey together and I don't think like I think most times when you get there you're trying to be chill and like yeah. but you had had two years of COVID this oh too, my god yes this goddamn wedding and you were just like, like I'm gonna fucking enjoy it it's, so, <laughs> it's happening and I also think you're not too full of yourself to just like a moment <laughs> And some people are too full of themselves 
AKA me, to <laughs> like a moment. <laughs> I was like, I can't let other people know I'm happy. What a shame. <laughs> anyway, go. So anyways, go. B. B. This is B as a young girl. And I think this is where her dreams of being an actress started to form. You know, mm. like she was like, I want to be elegant. So if I become an actress, then I'll be elegant. <laughs> Good luck, baby. Good luck, honey. <laughs> so, but when she was 16, B became very sick and developed a serious condition called coagulopathy. What is that? It's kind of like a short-term hemophilia. Her blood would not clot. And so we shouldn't get no much detail about it, but her parents are really concerned for her health, obviously. So like, okay, like, we're going to send her to a place where she has like around the clock care because like Cambridge, Maryland, like especially at this time is like kind of rural, you know? So they're it's like a fishing town. Yeah. So they're sent her to Linden Hall School for Girls, which was an all age, um, an all girls, sorry, not all age, all girls boarding school in Lilith's Pennsylvania. Oof. So she went there for her final two years of high school. And I think it was just like, look, there are people there 24 seven who can treat you immediately if like something happens there's fewer students you know there's less stress so like they this sent her there terrible yeah um so apparently this was is this a jane Eyre situation no 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 no, no. <laughs> that's literally all we know about it is that she went oh she went there uh, and then she uh so apparently this was a condition that could be cured so then she didn't have it she was fine eventually um i don't know the ins and outs of this but she was fine so Her she graduates high school now it's, now it's clotting again everything's fine <laughs> so she graduate graduates high school and goes off to attend blackstone college for girls in virginia she lasted about a year there and then when she was 21 the u.s was entrenched in world war ii so she decided to do her part, and she enlisted in the United States Marine Corps Women's Reserve in 1943. After basic training, she served as a typist at Marine Headquarters in D.C. Wait. Wait. <laughs> she was in the Marine Corps? Uh-huh. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. No wonder she's so fucking cool. I know. And then in June 1943, the Marine Corps accepted her transfer request to the Motor Transport School at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. There, she worked as a truck driver and dispatcher in Cherry Point between 1944 and 1945. She was honorably discharged at the rank of Staff Sergeant in September 1945. She was a truck driver in the fucking military. Can you believe that? I mean, I can. I mean, it's it's the reason she seems so hardened. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, she lived a fucking life yeah. before becoming an actress. Yeah. Like, it makes sense to me. Yeah, I can totally see. It just, like, fits with her persona. Well, and it also fits with her very, like, straight to the point. Like, I'm yes. going to... I've been to boot camp. Like, I know what it's like to follow yep. the rules. Like, get to it. Yep. Absolutely. So after her years of service, she went back home. But once back there, she was like, woohoo, I cannot be in Cambridge, Maryland anymore. <laughs> so, Same sister. <laughs> but rather than going straight and like pursuing, pursuing her. Sorry. Woo. I'm drinking gin tonight. Pursuing? We pursuing her dreams. <laughs> um, she decided to try out her more serious interests. She goes like, I think she was still like. Show business is not for me. I'm a serious person. So she's like, I really like chemistry in school. So why don't I become a medical technician? Shut up. She packed up her bags, went to the Franklin School in Philadelphia, 
which I imagine is part of the Franklin Institute. Yeah. And within a year became a certified lab technician. Hater. And soon she's working at a local Philadelphia hospital. In a lab. Of course she is. But after one summer, she said, you know what? I actually don't love running urine samples all over this hospital every day. (laughs) She goes, it's not, it wasn't quite what she thought it was going to be. And she was trying to think, she was like, okay, what if I thought about what would make me really happy instead of what would make me a serious person? And she thought about her dream of becoming the cool, blonde, elegant starlet. So she packed her bags up again and went to New York City. Wow. (laughs) Where she attended the new school's drama program. And she fucking loved it. The city just suited her. Even though she was living in a shitty $15 a month apartment with the bathtub in the kitchen, the toilet out in the hallway. Just very classic New York City. Very New York. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, She's attending acting classes. She's doing her thing. And she meets a New York playwright and former Marine named Robert Allen Arthur. They had this kind of whirlwind romance, but the marriage did not last long. The couple were together for just three years. And B decided that she didn't want to settle down just yet. I think that he expected her to just kind of like get married and then settle down and have it, her, his kids. And she was like, oh, wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> I want to be married to you, but I also want my own career. And I don't think he was okay with that. So she ditched him, but did keep the last name. But oddly enough, she had to tweak it. His last name, Arthur, was spelled A-U-R-T-H-E-R. <laughs> So she took out the U and took to the stage. She continued her acting training while making her way around the classical theater scene, but she said she wasn't moving up in the ranks very quickly. She was mainly getting the same type of supporting Lady Tremaine roles, the tall, stiff woman. And she was getting kind of frustrated with this. She will find out she does not like to be typecast. (laughs) So she embarked upon a singing career (gasps) and she got a job at a local nightclub called the Blue Angel. And she was like, I'll be a lounge singer. It'll be great. (laughs) But even though she was trying to get away from the image of the stiff woman, she just was a tall stiff woman and she was really bad at transitioning like between songs like she didn't have great like jazzy stage presence so instead of talking in between sets or like introducing the next song she would sing and then just wait until the next song started (laughs) and that's not a performance no it's not quite And I think she was like, but I'm good at singing because she is. She's a very good singer. But they're like, but you're not a performer. (laughs) And so the club fired her. Oh, I know. But the owner did give her some advice. He goes, I think you're holding things back. And he goes, I think you should try comedy. And she's like, (laughs) no, because she like, even though she employed comedy as a kid, I don't think she was quite like mentally ready to accept that yet. She didn't want to be goofy. She didn't want to be goofy. She was like, I want to be elegant. I want to be the starlet. Like this is not 
me, you know? So she was rejecting that for a little bit longer. (laughs) So she ends up starting a theater company with some of her friends that she went to drama school with. And it was here that she met fellow actor Gene Sachs. He was a, he was a comedic actor and B loved his ability to go up on stage and make people laugh, even though she was not ready to do that yet. (laughs) And the pair fell in love and they moved in together. Um, But after her first failed marriage, B was really not interested in getting married again, but Jean was worried about the optics for them. He said, look, if we're going to be living together, like we really need to get married because he's like, if people find out about this and like, if one of us gets famous, he's like, this is going to be bad. So like, why don't we just get married? So they did in 1950. <laughs> B was acting regularly in the theater company, but then, uh, had kind of some personal setbacks sometime in the early fifties. She met famed actress Tallulah Bankhead. She said she was at this event. And Tallulah appears at the top of this grand staircase with a. I mean, f- how could she not? How can you not? How Tallulah. Could she not? I mean, <gasps> she had a floor length fur stole, gorgeous white satin gown, and just her blonde hair cascading over her shoulders. And she descended the staircase so slowly, purposefully, so everyone could just take her in. B met her later that evening and asked her, how does it feel coming down the stairs like that? To which Tallulah replied, you know, you're the only person that asked me that. And she goes, and the reason that you asked me that is because you know that you're never going to know what it feels like. She said, this business isn't about talent. She goes, if it was, you'd be set. She said, it's about bone structure basically implying that B was too ugly or maybe even too Jewish looking or whatever it may be to be famous. B was, I think B is cute. Very. I think she's stunning. This is the thing. I think she's stunning. She's a beautiful woman. Yes. And I just think there's, especially in that time in Hollywood, there's a different view of what stunning is. I totally agree. And anybody that looks average on television is amazing in real life. Absolutely. And I also, you know, I was like, it wasn't blatant, but it was kind of implied that it was because she looked Jewish. Because like she said right after this, she goes, you know, people like me couldn't play leading ladies until Barbara Streisand. Mm. I was like. Okay. Okay. I understand what you're saying now. Got it. Get it. Got it. Good. B was very distraught by this. Uh, and in her documentary, <laughs> I love this line. She said, you know, and I thought I'll get even with you one day, you miserable bitch. <laughs> I don't know if she ever got even with Tallulah Bankhead for this comment, but she really hated her. <laughs> Listen, I have a backpack full of grudges. <laughs> I carry with me. So does B. Every goddamn <laughs> day. And when my friends get pissed at somebody, I pantomime. Just taking my backpack put off. Put it on. I open it up. Put it on. Throw that grudge in there, my girl. I will carry that grudge for you. I'm so good at grudge carrying. <laughs> you are. Listen. I think if you saw Rita in a alley, you'd slap her. I, there are people. I'm not going to explain who Rita is, but there are people that I would murder. 
In front of the police. Uh, thankfully, she did not murder Tallulah Bankhead, but I think she would too. Um, <laughs> so she has this unfortunate encounter, and then her career took the turn that she was avoiding. Hmm. B was performing in a musical number one night. It was kind of unclear what this was. I don't know if it was a play or just her singing, but it was kind of a serious song about, you know, like a jilted woman or whatever. And so she's singing it very seriously. And the audience started laughing and they wouldn't stop. And B was getting really mad. So she started getting more serious throughout the song. And she was like, I'm not trying to be funny. Like, why the fuck are they laughing at me? But as she got to the end of the song, the comedic nature of the whole thing kind of clicked for her. She goes, oh, I get it. I am being too serious. She's like, it's kind of funny when someone is way too serious about something. And this is my favorite quote. She goes, comedy is being terribly serious <laughs> yes. which is why i named the cocktail after because yes. i love that quote That's like so funny comedy is being terribly serious which like yeah some comedy is like so serious oh my God. about something that nobody else is nobody cares about, about. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said I just kind of understood what it was then and i started to really explore the side of myself you know she was like i started to play my usual stiff serious roles but i made it funny you know she's like i kind of embraced this thing that i was trying to run away from so after performing in a few off-broadway comedies and with the zigfield follies and like other things like that she started to catch the attention of some television producers and they started asking her to do under fives, which were basically like, you come in, say something funny under five lines, so we don't have to pay you that much. <laughs> and, you know, that was it. So she started doing those. And then in 1959, she was asked to be a regular on the George Gorbel show, which I've never heard of, but uh, apparently it was a big hit. <laughs> no idea. So... She and her husband go out to L.A. and they start the show. But apparently, I think she was kind of like a pinch hitter that didn't quite work out. And then, like, the show got canceled shortly after they got out of there. So then they go back to New York. <laughs> and once they're back, Jean finds success as a Broadway director. And when his star is rising, B kind of steps back for a bit. She did want children around this time, so she and Jean ended up having two boys. I know. Some sources say that she adopted them, and other sources don't mention it, but whatever. They're her boys. Uh, They were Matthew and Daniel, and she loved her kids so much, and she loved being a mom, and her kids describe their early life as being really idyllic. They were split between New York City and upstate New York, and they're going to plays, but they're also, like, swimming in the pool. Like, they said it was truly, like, the best of both worlds. But soon, B and Jean had to swap roles. In 1964, Jean contracted hepatitis and had to leave his job on Broadway. So, B went back. She goes, okay, that's fine. I'll be the breadwinner. It's no problem. And she ended up landing a role as a matchmaker in a little play called Fiddler on the Roof. She was in the 
the premiere, premiere? cast. You're lying. The room. That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? I, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. That was her on Broadway Can't in the believe premiere. It. Can't believe it. And of course, this play became a huge success. Such a tradition. <laughs> Is it a tradition, Katie? It's a tradition. It's a tradition. <laughs> um, so she stayed with the show until her husband was better. And then in 1966, he's like, I'm ready to come back. I'm back on Broadway. And he is hired to direct another new show that was about to hit the stage, which would become very famous, called Mame. But now that she was back on the stage, she was like, okay, well, I'm not quite ready to just like go back to being a stay-at-home mom. You know, she wasn't super keen on leaving. So she was like, okay, well, you're auditioning this thing. I'm going to audition to play Mame. She auditions to play the lead, but unfortunately she was up against some really stiff competition and the part went to none other than Angela Lansbury. I mean, come on. It's, it's so hard. Mrs. Like, Potts? Be Arthur, you're great, but you're not Mrs. Potts. <laughs> <laughs> you're just be Arthur. And... Oh, that's hard, though. It's hard. And B was really pissed about it for the rest of her life. Yo, I hear you. It's your husband's play. I know. And she did get another part. She got the role of Vera Charles, which is Mame's best friend, which is still a huge role. They Judy Greer her. Mm-hmm. But Rude. also, <laughs> Rude. this is the whole thing. Kind of like the Tallulah Bankhead thing. She was fixated on the fact that she was like, you know... Angela got to come down this big grand staircase in this white dress and be the main character. And I just want to be the one in white one day. She's like, they're always putting me in black. I want to wear white. And even though both were successful, I mean, both of those women won Tony awards for their roles that year. And even, I mean, this documentary was made like in the two thousands. She goes, yeah, I want a Tony for best supporting actress. <laughs> Why didn't she just wear a white dress to accept her goddamn Tony? I don't know. Yo, girl, make your future. So, it's just so clear to me that she is so still so angry about this years later. And I want to say that when she talks about this, it appears that she fucking hates Angela Lansbury. But the two were lifelong friends. <laughs> and I want to make this clear. Because we'll see this happen with B a lot in her life. And I think it's because her comedy comes from this very serious place. And she doesn't shy away from talking about the things that disappoint her, which I think a lot of women are taught to not talk about those things. And I think it's a really powerful move on her part to be like, yeah, I'm pissed that I didn't get that part. But she wasn't going to take it out on the woman who got the part because she's extremely talented. It seemed to me that her whole philosophy was not like, why her? Why? Like she's bad and I'm better. You know, it wasn't that she goes, why not me? Right. And I think that that's the thing that really engages me with B Arthur. It's like, she's never pushing it out on other people. She's putting it inwards. She just wants a good exit interview. Yeah. She wants to know what the issue is. And yeah, and I think that she was like, why can I never be that like 
blonde starlet. Like, why can't I, I'll dye my hair. I'll do whatever the fuck you want. But like, why can't it be me? And I, mm-hmm. so I, I totally understand that feeling of like, I'm not Angela Lansbury, but I am me because mm-hmm. she was never mad at Angela. She was like, yeah, she totally deserved it. Mm-hmm. She did. But also, job. but she, and this is the thing. B also said, but I all, I also deserved it. Mm-hmm. Two people can deserve one thing. Oh, perfect. Which I love because I think it's, I think it's true. And the play Mame, the musical, ended up actually being a really lovely time in B's life because she had this new friend of Angela Lansbury. They were so close. She's on stage in this really fun show and her husband is directing it. So they're working together which means their kids can be there at the theater while they're working. Right. I mean, that's the fucking dream is not having to sacrifice family for work. She's like, we were all there working on this play as a family. And it felt amazing. And then in 1972, she gets a call from her old friend, Norman Lear. And he says, I want you to come out to California. I've written a part for you and you're going to love it. B was a little skeptical about it. She didn't like when people wrote for her because she was like, what if I don't like it? And then what if I hurt their feelings because they think they know me and they don't and they fucking don't, you know, which is such a fear that I think people have and they don't like to say that they have. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it seems really nice. Like I made this thing for you and you're like, that's not who I am at all. Things like you and you know she also hated flying and she didn't want to go out to california because she was so disappointed last time because it was supposed to be her next career thing and it didn't work out but she went out anyways because the role of maude findley on the hit show all in the family i knew it was <laughs> so right for her this role of maude she was edith's outspoken feminist liberal cousin and she was created to be a direct contrast to the very problematic racist archie bunker (laughs) she was created to put archie bunker in his place because at this point they had already had a cast of characters who couldn't do that and they were kind of backed into a corner of like now he's saying some really fucked up things and we don't know how to remedy the situation. You need somebody a, or a character or mm-hmm. like any person that's willing to feel uncomfortable. Yes. And Maude was that. Right. <laughs> which is a, it's a hard thing to do to say something and sit there while everyone feels uncomfortable and you're like, yes. Yep. I'm, I'm feeling this and I yes. like it. This character of Maude was so popular, so fast, that the network quickly created an entire new TV show for her, aptly named Maude. And she was only on, like, I think two episodes of All in the Family. Mm. And they're like, she needs her own show. But this is going to be a big change for B <laughs> because the show would move her whole family out to California, which... Gene didn't really want to do. I mean, he was having a really big career on Broadway. You know, that was where he was kind of meant to be. And, you know, L.A. does not really have like a booming theater scene like New York does. No, it's very separate. Like there are two types of actors in the U.S. There's the L.A. actors and there's the New York actors. And you know which one you are. And he was like, I'm a New York person. Right. But 
he understood that this was too great of an opportunity for B to pass up. Right. So they all moved to California. And I want to say that the show mod is still taught in gender studies classes today for ins- impact on culture in general, but specifically the women's liberation movement of the 70s. Yeah. She was truly a character that had never been seen before. She was a strong, opinionated, middle-aged woman who was on her fourth husband, regularly took Xanax to get through the day, (laughs) and even at some point tried to run for political office. I mean, same. (laughs) (laughs) The show dealt with topics that other sitcoms wouldn't go near, like the Vietnam War, the Nixon administration, divorce, menopause, drug use, alcoholism, nervous breakdowns, mental illness, women's lib gay rights and spousal abuse right on a prime time sitcom <laughs> there's an episode where she saves a gay bar in town like there's this gay bar that comes up and her you know she's always pitted against her neighbor who's like you know the archie bunker he's flanders. like the right wing kind of guy the <laughs> ned flanders and he was like we can't let this happen and she goes why <laughs> and he goes because they're gay and he, she goes okay, why does it fucking matter to you? She goes, just let them be, you know? And I just think it's such a great stance to take against it because she's like, why are you so upset about this? It does not affect you at all. Like, <laughs> you're not going to go there. Right. Just like, so why does it matter? Hang out at home. Chill. There's also another episode where she deals with some white savior shit. So she has a housekeeper. It's this black woman named Florida. And she almost makes her black housekeeper quit because she's trying to be like too performatively progressive. Like she tried to force Florida to come in through the front door because she's like, no Florida, like you come in through the front door because you are equal to me. And Florida was like, no, but I park on this street. So it's easier for me to come through the back door. So like, that's actually what's easier for me. Like, I know what you're trying to do, but like, don't do it. But don't do that. Like, you know, and the whole episode was like, be trying to be like, Florida, I'm so progressive. And Florida's like, you're, you're actually kind of oppressing me because of how progressive you're trying to be. (laughs) There's also another episode where Maud gets a group together of her girlfriends to protest the harsh marijuana laws in their town after a 17-year-old boy who bags groceries is thrown in jail for having an ounce of pot on him. Right, because no one should be in prison for weed. No, they should not. (laughs) Not a soul. And again, this is in the 70s. And they are doing an episode on how the marijuana laws are too strict. That's absurdly liberal. (laughs) But the most groundbreaking moment of the show was in the second season during an episode called Maud's Dilemma. In this episode, Maud, who is 49 years old, becomes accidentally pregnant. She talks to her friends and, of course, her husband, Walter, about it. And after a lot of talking and a lot of soul searching, she decides to have an abortion. And I love this. The reason is because her and Walter agree they don't want to have a baby. 
And I don't I didn't watch the episode because I don't know where it's available. <laughs> but it seems to me that the decision ultimately came down to they didn't want to. And it wasn't because like, oh Maud, you're so old, like there could be complications, such a like, geriatric pregnancy. She goes, I don't want to be a mom at this point. And Walter was like, Yeah, I don't want to be a dad. And so she decides to have an abortion on this primetime sitcom two months before Roe v. Wade is passed. Abortion was legal in New York City. So that's like the reason given in the show of why she can do this. But this is groundbreaking. This is not. And they're showing it on TV. Primetime. I mean, and and this is still not a right that some women some, in our country have. I know. The station, of course, got a lot of hate mail about this episode, but even more so, the show Maud and B. Arthur herself were praised for their bravery for tackling this issue. And B. Arthur kind of became a symbol of the pro-choice movement because this was a time where this was not talked about on primetime. Now, I want to make this clear. This was not the first time abortion was a plot point on TV. We can thank soap operas for that. Mm. Because they were using it long before. (laughs) (laughs) So Barbara's love to get dicey. They love it. But it was a time, it was the first time it was a plot point on a primetime TV show. And it actually remains one of the only examples of an abortion plot line in a sitcom. I was reading an article about it that said that it was like the other primetime shows that tackled it were like Friday Night Lights and Grey's Anatomy, which are very current and are also dramas right they're not comedies it's not like friends no like no friends would never right it's still kind of the only traditional sitcom to be like yeah this woman had an abortion and everything is fine and i also think it's such an important image of a grown adult woman getting knocked up because people normally depicted in this situation are teen girls Right. And I think that it's important to show the diverse nature of like who gets abortions. Well, it's not just the people you think it's everybody. I agree. We were speaking of Sunday morning brunch. We we like several weeks, several months ago had a discussion at our, at our family, like mm-hmm. about it and like how, um, producer and I don't have similar stances on abortion mm-hmm. and producer kind of falls much more similarly to my parents and, I was like, what you don't understand is that if I got pregnant today, I'm a woman with two children and like all the means to support a child, I would have an abortion. Yeah. I don't want another kid. Yeah. And, and that's totally your right. And my dad was like, I see I'm not going to change your mind. No. <laughs> I was like, you're God, not. No. You're not going to change my mind. And that's just it. Yeah. Like, that's just it. Yeah. Like, there are a lot i i think that pe- you're right people don't see it as an older established woman with a life and a career they see everything as a mistake yeah and it's like you know what women get pregnant yeah and and i love that about the show she goes yeah financially i could totally do this i have the time i have the means whatever i have a partner like whatever i but don't goes, want i to. just don't want to and to make things even things even crazier, I can't believe that this was in the second season because the show went on for six seasons. The show was not canceled after this. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Mind. It was a number one show, 
B received five Emmy nominations and one win for this show. Stop. I just, I can't believe it that they are tackling issues such as gay rights and pot laws and abortion, and they're still the number one show. Wow. But with the rise of Maud and B-Star came the decline of her personal life and her marriage. Gene did not take so well to California, and he became the background player in their relationship and her life. One time he was literally shoved aside by people who wanted to talk to B. And then to make matters worse, Gene's big California job was directing the movie version of his hit play Mame. Now, some listeners may remember this movie from our episode on Lucille Ball. Yep. B reprised her role as Veronica, but instead of Angela Lansbury reprising her role as Mame, Lucille Ball kind of demanded it. The movie took two years to film, had an outrageously large budget, and unfortunately tanked at the box office. It's considered one of the biggest flops in movie history. And it kind of broke Gene. He was devastated. And their careers just ended up pulling them apart. And they divorced in 1979. But they always spoke fondly of each other. And it was also around this time that B. Arthur decided to end Maud. She said, I think it's time. And I think it's important to say that she ended it because... She was like, six is enough. I think we've said what we needed to say. I think we've done a good job. I think our ratings are good right now. She goes, let's end on a high note, which is so hard to do. And so many shows do not do that. So, and without B. Arthur, there is no mod. So she ended it and she was like, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to do some fun stuff. She's guesting on other shows. She hosts variety programs. She does an award show, you know. There's like this quote of her hosting an award show and like a, a actual live seal comes on stage. <laughs> Never seen anything like it. It was crazy. <laughs> um, but she was like, I in this time was ready to do anything that Maude would not do. She goes, I just wanted to get away from that character. I wanted to get away from that type. But then in 1985, <laughs> a script was going around with a character named Dorothy Zabornak. And in the description of the character on the first script, it said a B. Arthur type. So people were congratulating her on her new show. And he goes, she goes, I don't know what you're talking about (laughs) because it just said a B. Arthur type. So people thought that she was already on for the show. (laughs) Somebody like B. Arthur. Yeah. Um, But she was pretty, and they did ask her to do it, but she was really hesitant. Um, She was like, I don't really want to be tied down to another sitcom. I don't want to be pigeonholed. You know, I, I just don't know if I want to do this. But then her old friend, Rue McClanahan, who plays Blanche, who had been on Maud, and she was like in the abortion episode. Right. She was like, look, the script is really good. It's written by the same person who wrote that episode. We can do this. She's like, we can do this. Just read the script. It's so fucking good. She's like, look who's already on board. She goes, Betty White, Estelle Getty, me. Just read the script. So she did. And she was blown away by how well the whole thing was written. She said, on page, you would have no idea that these were elderly women. And I love that. (laughs) 
So she went on to star as Dorothy in The Golden Girls, which, of course, they were constantly nominated for Emmys (laughs) because the show was so good. And B. Arthur did eventually win one for her role as Dorothy. The show ran for seven seasons, but like with Maude, everyone else wanted to keep going. But B. decided to leave while the show was at its peak. She was like, guys, we just got to get out. She goes, we've said what needed to say. The show has been good. Let's go out on a high note. You have to end on the the ending chapter. You You can't, you can't, you can't end on the prologue. That's not good for a show. So B left and the network tried to continue without her. They said, we're not going to call the golden girls. We're going to call the golden palace, but it just, without B, it didn't have quite the same magic. And it ended after just one season. And one of the producers was like, mm, yeah, we should listen to her. <laughs> she was right. And I think that this is one of the reasons that rumors about her big feud and her horrible attitude with her co-stars, mainly Betty White, have stuck around for so long. And this is not to say that there wasn't disagreements or weren't disagreements. Betty herself said, yeah, B wasn't too fond of me. (laughs) But one of the main reasons that like they didn't quite get along was that they had very different acting styles. As we talked about in the Betty White episodes, Betty started out on TV. Mm -hmm. There was like nothing before that. She like did like radio and TV. So she kind of thought it was like this, yeah, this is this fun thing that I get to do. And it's just a good time. And B was more about like the craft of acting and she goes, no, this is how it's properly done. And she didn't like that. Betty didn't take it as seriously as she did. I think Betty writes, Betty White's role on that show is written to be cute and naive. Absolutely. Thing that B Arthur wanted to be and then detested. I know. So it's like a very much like it's easy to hate that role. Oh, for her. Absolutely. Sure. And I think it also didn't help that, like, you know, they got into the show. And I think B got kind of jealous that Betty was often seen as, like, the star of the show. And she was the first on the show to win an Emmy. It's, again, the why not me Mm -hmm. of the situation. But it was made worse because she also questioned why her. With Angela Lansbury... I think that she was like, oh, I understand why her, because she's very talented. She trained the same way I did, like da-da-da-da-da. And I think with Betty White, she was like, she does not have the credentials that I do. So, like, why her? And I think that she did kind of have a grudge against, you know, like, I'm better than her. So why is she getting the awards, you know? Right. And, again, when she won her award, she goes, you know... I love this show and there's not a dud in the bunch. I don't think that she ever really talked poorly of Betty White. And her son even said that the whole thing was really blown out of proportion. Oh, I'm sure. Which I absolutely believe. You know, I think it was just B's nature to be like a little persnickety. (laughs) And I also believe that she was a jealous woman who could really hold a grudge and was not shy of saying it right you know and, and like not shy of being like this person annoys me right now they yeah. might not annoy me tomorrow but right they annoy me right they now. Annoy me now and i think that also like betty was a conflict averse person who was like 
okay, we're not best friends and that's totally fine. You know, like I totally see it as like an SJP Kim Cattrall situation. Oh, we're not friends. It's okay. If we're not friends and it's okay. I was going to say that earlier. <sighs> so similar. So because anyways, those women are older. Yeah. Now than the women in Golden Girls. It's insane. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so after Golden Girls, be kind of semi-retired, taking just like guest roles on stuff, you know, whatever she kind of wanted to do. Uh, one of her famous guest roles was being on Malcolm in the Middle, <laughs> where she played <laughs> Dewey's babysitter. And there's just this great scene of her and Dewey singing the ABBA song Fernando to each other. And I <laughs> only mention it because I have such strong memories of this. That's and so I sweet. Yeah. did not know until this week that that was B. Arthur. And I oh. love that. I just always pictured someone else, but it makes so much sense that it was her. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know that specific episode. Oh, so it's so good. Know, it's not in my head. Um, and it's great because, like, you know, <laughs> they're singing and dancing to Fernando, and then she ends up, like, dying or something. And then Stewie, Dewey just like goes off on his own. But anyways, her performance was so good in this episode <laughs> that she was nominated for an Emmy for oh, it. <laughs> so many individual Emmys. performance. <laughs> so she's doing all this and she kind of has that same thought of when she was younger. She's like, but what do I want to do? So she goes, I'm going to finally realize my dream of singing on stage as myself alone. So in 2002, she put together a one-woman show called Be Arthur on Broadway, Just Between Friends. <laughs> it was a collection of stories and songs with musician Billy Goldberg based on her life and career. She finally got to be the center stage diva that she dreamed of being. And sometimes during the show, she would wear white. The show was nominated for a Tony Award for Best Special Theatrical Event. She would also go on to play Larry David's mother on Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> and then in maybe in one of her best performances to date, she participated in the roast of Pamela Anderson <laughs> by simply reading passages from a book that Pamela Anderson had written. This is a fictional book about a young actress on a beach show, on a beach themed show who gets together with a rocker and has their sex tape leaked. <laughs> Pam! A fictional book. Is that my P? Is it Pam for this? I one? would really recommend you watch B. Arthur reading this because <laughs> Pam Anderson is like, dear God, did I actually write that? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no. B. Arthur <laughs> talking about Tommy Lee's dick on stage is perfect. Is perfect. Yeah, of course. With Tommy Lee right there next to her because he's roasting Pamela Anderson also. Yeah. It's insane. So anyways, on September 28th, 2009, B. Arthur passed away from lung cancer in her home at the age of 86. She was a supporter of many charities throughout her life, including a lot of animal welfare charities and LGBTQ plus organizations. And upon her death, she donated $300,000 to the Alley Forney Center, which is a New York City based organization that provides housing for homeless LGBTQ plus youths. I think that B was a complicated private woman who had a lot of pride in herself and in her work 
and wasn't afraid to say how she was feeling, even if that feeling was, I'm going to get you for this bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And I think she sums it up well herself when she said, I'm not playing a role. I'm being myself. Whatever the hell that is. <laughs> and honestly. That's, that's honestly, B. Arthur. Yay, what a great, great, great story. I just, I really love her. She's and I great. think a lot of people villainize her because of her feud with Betty White. And I've Betty White never, is like the angel I've of... never once villainized B. Arthur. <laughs> I've never once thought like, I've always thought she's just playing a role. Yeah. Whatever the hell that is. Whatever the hell that is. <laughs> All right. Well, now we need to talk about these two women in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. So these women had, I think, more in common than I expected them to. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> um, I was thinking a lot about how initially, like, the I was thinking about, like, how house arrest and like bees sitcoms kind of struck a similar chord with me about how, like the idea of like being stuck. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like Ong chose to be stuck for other people. Um, and B was like refusing to be stuck in any scenario. Yeah. And other people, it seemed had these views of them. Oh yeah. At the same sure. time. I, I don't know. I, I just think that people thought that B is such a jerk and they thought that Ong was so holy (laughs) and they have this like exact opposite, just like being stuck and not stuck. Yeah, exactly. I, I just felt like they had such like similar forces, like being pulled at the same time. I don't know. It was a weird, um, yeah, it was kind of weird. And I was also thinking a lot about how, yeah, there are just some people out there that really don't like them mm. <laughs> and a lot of people who have loved them. So like they're getting a lot of love and a lot of hate all at the same time. Um, and they're very public figures. So people are always talking about them, you know? And I think it just goes to show like, even though Ong has done some like bad things, it's like, no, like the thing I got from it is like, no person is all good or all bad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I also think they both, neither of them were good or bad in any sense, but they, I think they both threw themselves into the things that they loved. Yes. Which was, whether it was a good or bad thing, mm-hmm. they were pushing so, so hard mm-hmm. to do something that felt important to them. Yeah. And B, you know, that meant her jumping around a lot in the beginning. Like, mm-hmm. she's in the Marine Corps, yeah. and she's doing this, and she's doing that, until she finally lands on comedy. And then she does it really well. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Ong, the thing she did well was be on house arrest. Yeah. Like, even though <laughs> In she, a weird way. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Like, she went to all these different countries. She lived in India. She lived in the UK. She mm-hmm. lived in the United States. But it nothing quite suited her like being in her house yeah well and I wonder like what that says about some people because I think it's the thing that you weren't expecting them to be good at and the thing that they themselves weren't expecting to be good at because you saw that with B a lot she was always trying to push away from comedy even though it was like totally her destiny Mm -hmm. you know and I think that they're is maybe also a little bit of bitterness from both of them of like, you know, Ong is like, why can't I be the politician that's like out there and doing things on my own terms, you know, exactly. And B is like, why can't I be the classy starlet that I've always wanted to be, you know? And I think there's a little bit of unfulfilled 
desires for both of them. I also couldn't believe the age gap. <laughs> like, I, I can't believe how much older B. Arthur is than Ong. I know. Unbelievable. Yeah. I it's... Like, she was in the Marine Corps in World War II. Yeah. And Ong wasn't even born yet. Yeah. <laughs> It is very weird. Isn't it? Yeah. I find that to be insane. She was born in like 47. No, her dad was like freeing the country in 1947. Yeah. I also like, it's also interesting because like it shows to me that the problems with like women and family also don't change, you know, Mm. like we have two women of very different, um, not super different, but like, you know, there's a pretty big age difference as we were just saying. And both of them had to make kind of a choice between like, okay, like I want to be with my family, but I also have to be doing these other things. Right. You know what I'm saying? And I often wonder, you know, if men ever feel the same kind of pull back towards their family. Right. Because in B's first marriage, right. He was like kind of expecting her to wife up, like do what you're supposed to do. And I mean, I don't think that Ong's husband ever put that pressure on her, mm-hmm. but she was not having it. No, <laughs> and no, no, no. Nor, nor was B. They were both just like, no, sorry, I'm going to do what I have to do. Yeah. And then we also see the kind of careers and the weird way that they take shape also like dissolve that family. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like B's second marriage totally fell apart because of her success, mm. you know, and this thing that she ended up being really good at. And right. I felt the same thing with Ong. Like, obviously you have a whole military in that <laughs> arena. A whole country them from keeping you from together. Um, but, you know, I think it's just, again, women have to decide because she could have, Ong could have left. She could have been like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to leave and never come back and like, you know, be with my family and be, have the same choice. But then it's like, this is such an illusion of choice. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot for women, there's this illusion of choice. And I also wanted to talk about awards. Like, I think that it's just an interesting, like awards played a much bigger part in both of their lives. Because I felt like B was always so mad that like she wasn't getting the exact awards she wanted. Which is funny to me because she... She got Emmys. She got Tonys. She just didn't get the Tony for lead actress. And she didn't get the first Emmy for Golden Girls, you know? And it's, like, interesting that, like, she's still getting it, but not exactly the way she wants. And you have Ong having her awards stripped away because of her future actions. Right. You know? And also, like, so, like, do these even fucking mean anything? No. (laughs) I think, you know, when you get on that world stage, I'm sure as an actress or an actor, there are some pieces that you feel like you did such a good job on that nobody notices. And that's so frustrating, especially Mm -hmm. if you're stretching yourself. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, these worldwide, like freedom awards, like Mm -hmm. it is beyond me what goes into choosing these people or how to even get famous enough to be chosen for something like that mm-hmm. but then to be famous enough to have a lot of them taken away no that's insane yeah it's just i don't know it's i think awards are a very interesting thing that we humans have created because again i think it puts people up on a pedestal mm-hmm. you know and i think for b that pedestal she never got to the one she wanted you know and i think with ong she was totally uh 
taken off of the pedestal, <laughs> which is against like, should we even be putting people on those things anyways? Like <laughs> they were both just their lives playing a part. That yeah. was the, that's the wrap up of their stories. Yeah. It's like, I'm playing this part and you want me to be this way. Yep. Exactly. I don't know. Very interesting ladies who Absolutely. there are a lot of emotions about. <laughs> um, a and B, this was a good, good week. I think so. Mm-hmm. Good week. I liked the pairing. Um, and yeah, I am excited for the rest of the alphabet. Yeah. This should be interesting. <laughs> All right. So Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I want to toast people who look back and bring the people who are smaller than themselves mm. with them. Mm-hmm. I think that is um, Aung San Suu Kyi's biggest failing in her yeah. life is that, you know, even if she didn't like purposely cause the ethnic cleansing in her country, she didn't turn around to help people when yeah. they needed it. Mm-hmm. So I just think it takes a lot of bravery to do that because, you know, she could have lost the lex- next election for doing that. And if she was a warrior for world peace, then she should have. Mm-hmm. So absolutely for women who All do right. that. Yay. <laughs> How about you? I want to toast honest, emotional women. <laughs> I, <laughs> there's something so refreshing about the way that B. Arthur spoke about herself and her career. And I don't, you know, she gets labeled as kind of a bitch, but I also think that it's important to have women to be like, no, I wanted that other award. I wanted to get the first Emmy because I worked really fucking hard. And I'm classically and trained. And I'm classically <laughs> trained. And like, I don't think it means that Betty White didn't deserve it. I don't think that at all. But I also think that it's just a an interesting thing that women are not taught to do mm. is kind of voice their complaints, even if they may seem a little petty. <laughs> and so I'm going to toast to that honest, emotional, sometimes petty women. <laughs> That's great. All right. It reminds me of the text Olivia sent us today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are we going to promo? Time um, to promo. Okay. I'm going to promo a show I've been watching that's so good. Okay. It's called Search Party. It's on HBO Max. And it's uh, Aaliyah Shawcat from Arrested Development who played mm-hmm. uh, Maybe. Um, she's all grown up. And she's in this show. And the whole show kind of centers around uh, her searching for this girl who she went to college with who went missing and she becomes like obsessed with it and she like drags her boyfriend and her friends in with it and things get crazy. There's like a cult involved. It's bananas. It's the, and everything they're wearing is so good. It, it just, <laughs> it gets crazy. That sounds great. It's just fascinating. And it's like five seasons. Like I think like 10 episodes a season, they're 22 minutes. Oh, it's I like, love that. Ugh. You can Casey run and through I like are, six a night. Casey and I are breezing through it. <laughs> and it's so good. So search good. party on HBO Max. Fun. What are you enjoying? Well, I'm going to promo also a show, but mm. it's a documentary. Mm. And since Sister moved in, I realized how many documentaries producer and I watched. She was like, I'm, it's unbelievable. She was like, I never knew 
how much she was like no wonder you guys know so much shit like okay <laughs> so i um the new andy warhol docuseries Ooh. is so good it's on mm-hmm. netflix and it's just all the things i didn't know that i knew needed yeah. to know about mm-hmm. andy warhol like i know his art but i didn't know enough about his personal life yeah. and like you know his life and the way that he identified as a queer man or like Mm -hmm. an asexual man i think is really cool yeah so i've learned a lot excellent (laughs) all right well two great promos um and i think with that find us everywhere please do um we're on instagram and facebook and wherever um but mostly we want to we want you to rate and review us on apple Podcasts. that would be the most helpful uh it gets the word out boosts our ratings um we haven't had a review in a little bit so if you wouldn't mind popping over there that would be great we'd love it we would love it um and as always we also want you to never forget that well-behaved women use the dry cleaners <laughs> they do god i need to dry clean my winter coats honestly before right. i forget before next before year I when forget. it gets cold uh and they rarely make history goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye